Some people look at problems and say, man, somebody should do something. Some people look at problems and say, you know what, I'm going to do it. Uh, that's Mark Lindquist. Uh, he has been very active in what people need uh in Ukraine, uh, what the Ukrainians themselves need. And uh, Mark has a background here, as I mentioned before the break, or if you're just joining us, uh, Mark is well known throughout the country uh, for his military service and and quite frankly for his voice. Uh, the good Lord gave him a great one. And he has sung uh, the national anthem to many, many a big crowd. But he's used that notoriety uh, to go around and raise some bucks, get some coats, do some things like that. He joins us right now. Uh, Mark, good to have you back on News and Views, bud. Thanks so much for bringing attention to Ukraine here on the one-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. Uh, appreciate you giving me the time. I think it's best described by you. Tell people what you've been up to, Mark. Well, for the past year, I felt like the uh, the, the, the cause of freedom called me to action, like you said. Uh, I'm a person of action. You know, we can talk about it all day long, but I would rather uh, my actions speak so loudly I can't hear the words coming out of your mouth. And so for the past year, we've moved roughly $6 million worth of humanitarian aid to the right places in Ukraine, and we're going to keep working until we win. And, and give people an example, because I, I think that a lot of people who say, you bet, I'm going to trust Mark, I need to get this stuff to him, whether it's financial, whether it's whatever, <laughs> t- tell people what it does, what, what you're using it for. Well, when I got over there in April of last year, I started asking dumb questions of smart people. And the smart people are the people on the ground who know boys in trenches and know what they need. Mostly it was medical supplies. Then it became winter weather gear. And now it, it becomes funding because all of the Ukrainian NGOs, nonprofits, and volunteers are out of money. They've, they've given everything they can. And we, we can't forget that this Ukrainian economy is going through a Great Depression-style um, or, or, or type economic crisis double as bad as our Great Depression in the 1930s. And so this year I'll be concentrating on full-time fundraising for all of our partners we know and trust. Mark, people see the president of the United States, albeit unannounced, uh, all of a sudden showing up in Kiev. And uh, they think, whoa, uh, he's definitely in harm's way. It's good nobody told anyone. And I think it's pretty cool that he was able to to do this and, and to send that message. You've been, and I'm not trying to compare you to being the president, but you understand the geography. You understand yeah. the real danger areas of Kiev. Um, and you've been to some of them. Um, obviously... You know, w- w- when you look at it as a whole, are there certain places you just wouldn't go, even even with your military background? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I have friends that sleep in, in Bakhmut and defend that area. Solidar. I've had friends that were in Sloviansk, Lisa Chansk, and Severodonetsk, and those are places that this American airman doesn't go because there's no reason for me to go and risk my life to do so. Now, when you go to Kiev, when you go to Lviv, when you go to Dnipro, the big cities there, there's little or no danger largely the statistics say that you're in more danger of waking up and dying of an accident than being hit by a missile. That doesn't mean that it's not a dangerous place. It just means that Ukraine is a green zone. If you're in Ukrainian-controlled territory and you're not up near the front lines, you can operate as you would driving from Fargo to Detroit Lakes, save for a few checkpoints here and there. And so that's what I think Americans don't understand, is that much of the country has relative safety and people are operating and trying to live their lives as usual. Um, And so, uh, you know, that's the knowledge we have having operated out there for a year. I want to talk to you a little bit about the the Ukrainian people. Uh, I had a chance before you uh, came on to visit with uh, Dr. Carrie Oderman, who that's home. 
I mean, it, it yeah. Belfield isn't home anymore. Uh, she made her her life, her living, her profession, and was raising her family in 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 Kiev. And so, I, I got a perspective from her. I'm curious from you, getting a chance to to be face to face, to be that handshake away. Uh, what you see in the eyes of the Ukrainian people? What I see is a society of people joining together, I assume, much like we did during the times in World War II, during a generation that we call great, is they're putting aside differences. They're, they're, they're working tirelessly you know, after work, or if their businesses were shuttered, they're working 20 hours a day to help their people. There's this sense of unity in the Ukrainian society that I think is going to make them the most formidable society on planet Earth, because they figured out how to solve problems together and work towards something that's a cause greater than, than themselves. And that's something I think that every free society should aspire to and follow the example of the Ukrainian people. I'm inspired by them. Uh, I want to be a part of what they're doing, and I want to support them until they win. 20 below this morning when I woke up. 20 below. Uh, yeah. And that was without the wind chill. So I, I ask you this. So when people are blowing up your power plants and you live in a country with a climate very similar to ours, what is the attitude of the people uh, when it comes to something like that, the price that they're paying domestically, because the reality is that's happened to them in very, very cold weather. From October 2022 to February 2023, 77% of the Russian strikes were on critical infrastructure because these Russians know that you can use winter as a weapon. Because, you know, even in Ukraine, a country the size of Texas, there is something that we call the proximity of war. If you're not right near the front lines, you can put it out of sight, out of mind, and try to move on with your life and not focus on war every day. Well, now that the infrastructure was bombed and the power went out across the country, now Russia, mistakenly, I think, brought the war to everybody's doorstep and pissed everybody off. Because when you're living without power, you have power three hours a day, all of a sudden that affects you greatly. Now you can't work your virtual job from Kiev if you work for a North American company because you don't have power. And so I think that, you know, Russia made a miscalculation there. I think he probably awakened a sleeping giant in the in the whole Ukrainian society. And uh, everybody's ready to fight now. But but one of three things is going to happen. Right. I mean, and when I think of this question, I think of the elderly. I, I think of that, you know, I don't want to say 70 anymore because I'm too close to it. I'm going to use 80 <laughs> as the example. OK, so I, I think of that 80 year old woman who is that's her home. That's where she lives. That's where she raised her kids. And it's going to, three things are going to happen. Either she's going to go, all right, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live under constant uh, uh, a potential of a barrage. I don't want my house to be cold. Or she's going to say, I can hang in there. Or she's going to get ticked. She's going to get really ticked. And she's going to get even deeper into her resolve and her commitment uh, to making sure the Russians don't win. What are you seeing the most of, Mark? Well, since I move around the country uh, and meet these people who stayed, I see that resolve. I see that, you know, much like we saw after 9-11, people who are digging in and say, you know, we're not going to let these terrorists win. And I see people saying, you know what, this is my home. I've heard the story of eight or nine million people moving out of the country and the struggle it is to live in a country where you don't have a job, friends, or know the language. And so people are staying, people are returning back to their home because, Joel, like, if, if you were forced to move out of North Dakota and move up to Canada, uh, the French-speaking part where you don't know the language, I mean, y you, you probably would end up riding it out in Fargo and just 
pressing your luck because that's home. There's, there's 16 million people or a third of the country who are not living in their homes. And people, I mean, it's a very difficult situation to have to move that amount of people in the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. And so I see people digging in and saying, I've heard these stories of people fleeing and it doesn't go so well for them. It's a hard life. So let's build our own community, make ourselves and our country strong. And uh, that's inspiring to me, people who won't give up. Uh, The people that you've had an opportunity to speak to, uh, not individuals that are normally going to have a microphone in their face or hold some sort of an elected position, or I'm just talking about the average Joe or Jane out there on the street. Uh, Do you think they're willing to compromise with any regions of Ukraine to end this war? No, no. Because you can't walk into a place, bomb the hell out of it, and then just call it Russia. That's what they're trying to do. Crimea, the Donbass, that's Ukraine. The fact that a brutal dictator decided it was his to start out with and doesn't believe that Ukraine is a country, we can't just let that happen. We're not going to capitulate. And so in this situation, it doesn't matter if Putin saves face. Whatever happens after this war, he's just going to lie about it anyway and tell people in Russia that he won. And so— we are of the opinion that, that we push them back to the, 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 the 2014 border, and that's our victory. So is NATO doing enough? No. No way. What are we doing? $29 billion of security assistance is 1.5% of what the American government is going to spend through the Pentagon this year. It is embarrassing to me the level of slow rolling that we're doing here, hoping that we bleed Russia to death. My friend, we could do way more. You know how it works. We can move a decimal point at the Federal Reserve. I've been to Zhezhov, Poland. There's every Patriot missile battery and piece of American armament that we brought back from Afghanistan sitting an hour away from the Polish, from the Ukrainian border in Poland. We could do more. We can get it across the border and challenge America to, to figure out how to get M1 Abrams tanks in there before 2024 and 2025. We need to be led by a person who says, we're going to do this. We just need to figure out how. That's what you do in the American military, is you challenge these people to do something bigger than what they think they can do. I think it's time to port, you know, turn on the faucet. Because let's be honest, Joel, we only have two years to win this war. If Donald Trump or some, a similar person becomes elected president, American military support disappears. We have a timeline, and the sense of urgency is great. Uh, Mark, if people want to track what you do, they want to follow it, they want to help. How can they do that? Where do they find you on social media? Google Mark J. Lindquist. Follow me at Mark J. Lindquist or go to our A-Team nonprofit website. It's markjlindquist.com backslash Ukraine. Nobody gets paid out of this account. Uh, It's all directly to the humanitarian aid. And we buy the things locally because there's plenty of items on the shelves in Europe and in Ukraine. We don't have to wait for it to cross the ocean. We can get it locally, prop up this economy and support these people. You stay safe, my friend. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Mark Lindquist, ladies and gentlemen.